Dad is great, and Mom, and, and uh, we missed them. They're in cold weather Chicago, terrible cold. Do you live in Chicago? Oh, man. You know, I went to seminary at Trinity, which is north of where you all are, and we lived for a while in Skokie, then Prospect Heights, and then uh, Deerfield, all those areas. And uh, how about Chicago pizza? Do you like it? Why don't you bring some? <laughs> and Philip is staying with the Joneses, so you can pray for Philip that he not be, you know, just badly influenced. How long are you going to be here? A whole week. Great. Great. Thanks for leading us. Very beautiful. We're familiar with that song, and the way you did it was just really, really wonderful. Wonderful. Philip's the worship leader in his dad's church in Chicago. Did you get paid or anything? Yeah, okay, good. I'm just checking because I know your dad. He spends all his money on shirts. Like, you know. Okay, folks, we're in 2 Samuel. Did you know that? So, <clears throat> there is a remarkable smoothness of transition from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. A bonus question. Why? Why is there such a, you will see, the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31 leads right into the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1. Why? These are two different books. What do you think, Joe? <sighs> Joseph, that's why he gets a front row seat. Originally, in the Hebrew scriptures, they were uh, one book, not First and Second Samuel, just Samuel. So how did we get the division? Um, in around the 2nd century B.C., the earliest translation of the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew to Greek was done. And it was done by 70-plus Jewish scholars. It is thought six from each of the tribes, six times 12, 72. And so the translation committee took on the name Septuagint translators from the number 70. So they translated the Hebrew to Greek, and it is a valid, good translation. How do I know this? It is referred to many times by the writers of the New Testament. They invoked the Septuagint translation in embracing texts from the Old Testament. So this is a valid thing. Anyway, the translators, of the Septuagint translators, took a look at Samuel and decided for whatever reason, it should be divided into 1st and then 2nd Samuel. Why? Well, they probably saw a thematic transition of sorts at the end of chapter 31 of 1st Samuel because 2nd Samuel now seems to focus more on the life of David as king who succeeded the first king of Israel, Saul. So, uh, that's probably legitimate. Anyway, since the 2nd century B.C., we have retained that division, hence we have First and Second Samuel. Now, Brother Chuck and I probably made a mistake. Uh, we finished First Samuel, as you know, and then we wrongly assumed you were sick and tired of First Samuel. And so we decided to give you a break, and we went into a brief, uh, a shorter New Testament book, Galatians, and now back to Second Samuel. But we found out that we misread most of you, and that some were upset because we didn't finish the story in 1 Samuel. We, we ended rather abruptly, and so now we're back in 2 Samuel. Now, let me tell you, I saw this coming, and I tried to get Brother Chuck's 
attention, but you know how he is. And so you could just pray for him. But anyway, we're back here now, one way or the other, Second Samuel. So we're going to pick up the action. Listen, First Samuel ended tragically. Israel's first king is killed. He dies on Mount Gilboa. So too did Jonathan, his son, David's very close friend, and Saul's other sons. In addition, the Israelite army was routed by their perennial opponents, the Philistines, and it was um, just a tragic situation. And uh, that's how uh, chapter 31 of the previous book, 1 Samuel, ended. And that being the case, notice now how smoothly uh, all that activity continues as we take a look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel. Here's what it says. Now it came about after the death of Saul. So you see the connection. When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Here's what happened. David was pursued, as you remember, by Saul, who had moments of insanity. There were windows of opportunity and rationality during which time Saul really performed well as king. At other times, he seemed to lose his mind, whatever you attribute it to. He seemed to be given over to a gross unreasonableness, thinking David was his enemy when, in fact, David offered nothing but um, a good alliance and support. So David spent most of his years uh, in First Samuel on the run from his kinsman, King Saul. In fact, things got so desperate on one occasion, David had to cross over into enemy territory, Philistine territory, and he feigned madness of his own by drooling and all the rest, lest the Philistines think he was there under a uh, uh, the guise of uh, spying or attacking them because he had developed a, a reputation already as quite a good military leader. And so while there, he was quite persuasive, and so the Philistines were not threatened by him because he was acting crazy. So one of the Philistine leaders, a man named Achish, decided it's good to have David in our midst, but he's like a Jewish guy, and we be Philistines, and you know, they're different, they eat different foods, and they're just, so we'll give them their own neighborhood. We'll hang out in the Philistine territory, and we'll give them a place called Ziklag, which is kind of like a country place. And David brought there his uh, faithful military followers and all their families, and they were at Ziklag. Well, they're away the, the men, the leaders are away on a particular occasion, and a group of nomadic uh, folks called the Amalekites attack. They're not Philistines. They're descendants, in fact, of Esau. The Amalekites attack Ziklag, and they plunder and pillage and do crazy things. While David and his army is away, they come back to see Ziklag flattened and their relatives carried away, others murdered, and all the rest. So David uh, organizes his troops, and they go off in pursuit of the Amalekites. They find them. They slaughter them. That's what's kind of happened, and now we read in verse 2, this time indicator. See where it says, on the third day? Uh, you would ask the question, third day, with regard to what? Third day after David victoriously um, subdued the Amalekites, three days since that happened, he's back now in Ziklag. That's what's happening, and here's what happens. 
behold, a man came out from the camp from Saul, meaning from Mount Gilboa, and with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So these are signs of grieving in that day and uh, amongst many people groups even today. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Why did he do it? Well, not just mere respect. He knew that David was going to be king. He uh, was not meant to be because if Saul had conducted himself in a different way, he would not have forfeited his own kingship. And uh, also, uh, he would not have uh, affected the future of his children. One of his successors, one of his kids, should have been the next king of Israel, but all that was forfeited. And so David is going to be the next king. This man knows about it, and he's treating David as king even before he is officially uh, acknowledged as such. And David, verse 3, said to him, from where do you come? He really does not have any idea. And he said to the man, uh, uh, and he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. He wants to know how the battle on Mount Gilboa between Saul and Jonathan, the other Israelites and the Philistines, he wants a status report. And you say, what is going on? What do you mean? Why does he have to wait so long? Folks, no texting, no internet, no nothing in these days. You know, word went by foot, messenger to messenger. And so David is very anxiously wondering how did things go well now there's this man who said i'm coming from mount gilboa david assumes therefore he could from him ascertain the facts of the battle how did it go and here's the man's very tragic response he said the people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead and saul and jonathan his son are also dead well all of Saul's sons are dead. This man singles out Jonathan, again, being aware of the very close relationship, friendship between David and Jonathan. So David said to the young man who who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Now, folks, I don't want to be a cynical New Yorker, but... What? By chance? You're not a Philistine. You're not an Israelite. You're an Amalekite. This is not your war. You got no dog in this hunt. What do you mean you happened to be on the site of the battle? Why are you there? Um, So being a cynical Yankee, um, I'm thinking of other reasons why he might have been on Mount Gilboa. He wasn't in the fight. I'm ruling that out. Are there any other cynical people in here who could maybe guess at maybe another reason why he was on Malcolm What do you think, Ryan? Very interesting. Someone in the last class said the very same thing. He could have been a spy. That is a very legitimate possibility. Yes, Ray? Yeah. So there you go. So Raymond over there is an ex-cop, so he's even more, he's more cynical than I am. I really think that's it. He's there for plunder, folks. 
their bodies strewn all, all over the place, Philistine bodies, Israelite bodies. He has the good fortune of locating the dead body, I think, of the king of Israel, and there's some special loot to be had there, as you'll see in just a second. So I think he's fabricating the whole thing. Now, you may be saying, what in the world would be his motive in making all this up as he shares with uh, David? Well, hang in there. I think you'll see in just a second. Anyway, verse 5, David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? He says, uh, by chance I happened on Mount Gilboa. Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me. He called to me, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite, uh, which would not be a good thing to advertise, and yet he seems to have done that. And the reason why that would not be a good thing to admit to is because God had ordained, mandated that all Amalekites be exterminated. Now, I, re- I realize that raises an ethical question. We addressed it when we were in 1 Samuel. For uh, purposes today, we won't go into it. But God had ordained that all the Amalekites be wiped out. Uh, this guy is still alive. Ironically, because King Saul did not obey God and do what he was told to do. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel, the then prophet of Israel, rebuked King Saul because he was more interested in Amalekite loot than in doing what God had ordained he was to do, and that is to wipe out all the Amalekites. And very interesting now, you have an Amalekite on the scene, I think, fabricating this particular story. Then verse 8, he said to me, the Amalekite is saying, Saul said to me, please stand beside me and kill me. For agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. Now, folks, that is entirely discrepant from the account of Saul's demise as recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 3 to 6. Listen, the battle went heavily against Saul. The archers hit him. He was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, pierce me through. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. He didn't want to be taken alive. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And so Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw this, Saul, that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer and all the men on that day together. That's the account we read about Saul's death in 1 Samuel 31. The Amalekite story seems to be discrepant from it, which is why I think he made up the whole thing. I don't buy it for one minute. Now, you should know, in the interest of being fair, a number of commentators believe this is an accurate account of what happened on Mount Mount Gilboa. More think it's not. Most commentators think uh, this man made the story up. And then, in fact, the man says, I took the crown which was on his head, the kingly crown, and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Uh, So you might say, if I'm right and this guy's making all this up, what what does he have to gain from it? It's this. He knows that David has been for years on the run from Saul. There was sure animosity and friction between them. Saul had 
uh, very public contempt for David. Now Saul's dead one way or the other. The man claiming at his hands, which I don't believe, but I think the man wants credit for his death, thinking this would be good news to David. David, the man who irrationally pursued you for the better part of your life, uh, is now dead. And by the way, I had a role in it. And as evidence of it, here's his crown and here's his uh, bracelet. I think the man is doing this in anticipation uh, of reward. Uh, but he underestimated the character of David. David not only did not rejoice, as you'll see, in the death of King Saul, he outwardly grieved it. He had an opportunity himself to cut Saul's life short on more than one occasion. Remember, he said, far be it for me to lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed. And now this Amalekite, he's not even an Israelite. He's an alien and a stranger. He has the audacity to think it's okay to take the king's life. So the man's plan really backfired, and he receives a very surprising response from David, not rejoicing, but grief. Here it is in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. David's grief was manifested in the renting of his clothes, and his grief gave permission to all the rest to join in the grief as well. And so they mourned and wept, and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, where, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien. I, I'm an Amalekite. Then David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David, even in the midst of his grief, is fulfilling the mandate of God, the uh, commandment to exterminate the Amalekites. I'll read it to you. It's given originally in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. Israel is liberated from four centuries of bondage in Egypt. She's making her trek through the wilderness to a place of promise, to the promised land. Along the way, she meets with those who were less than kind and supportive. One people group who gave Israel, the Israelites a hard time in their journey were the Amalekites. In fact, their strategy was to strike at those in the rear of the procession. Why would you do that? Who do you think is going to end up in the rear? It's going to be older people and children, folks who can't keep up. So Amalek deliberately targeted the defenseless amongst Israel. God said, don't forget this. Remember this. Anyone who messes with my sons and daughters mess with me. By the way, that's true of believers today as well. And so God says, he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land which your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So David, in the midst of his grief, is avoiding the error Saul committed. Saul forgot to obey this commandment. David did not. And so David orders the execution of this Amalek man. David said to him before he died in verse 16, your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed 
the Lord's anointed. The man's own words convicted him. I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, there are many factors that may, uh, in our minds, excuse and justify what the Amalekite did. For instance, Saul was, in fact, in rebellion against God and hardened himself towards him. Two, Saul repeatedly and constantly, as we mentioned, tried to kill David. Three, Saul was already near death. His wound was pretty fatal. And fourth, Saul asked the Amalekite to kill him, so says the Amalekite. So you might say this mercy killing was justified. What's another word for mercy killing? Oh, murder, you would say. Ah, all right, way to go. Uh, euthanasia, right? Which means, uh, euthanasia means good death. That's what it means, good death. So let me just depart from the text a tad bit just to address that subject, just briefly, briefly. And the reason I do is uh, we're going to be increasingly, in my opinion, confronted with euthanasia as a very viable option offered even by the medical community today. Why do I say that? I don't think overly dramatically. That's already the case internationally. For instance, Holland and Netherlands is already uh, immersed in uh, uh, euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. They're slightly different, but essentially the same thing. Now they're even considering, I just read today, uh, movement with regard to the mercy killing of children who are, uh, have been born with chronic diseases and illnesses. So here's the deal. Um, those who are uh, promoting this do so, it's logical, uh, because they are uh, evaluating the quality of one's life. And they're essentially saying at certain times in our lives, the quality of our lives can be so diminished, it's life no longer worth living. Uh, you can become so affected by a disease process. You can be deteriorate so much by the aging process. Uh, you can become mentally infirm. You can have a condition that simply causes great pain. Therefore, uh, ones would say the compassionate thing to do is to take a, a look at that and to assist people in terminating their lives because they're so diminished quality-wise. So it's a quality-of-life standard. You and I can understand that. The problem is the quality-of-life standard does not emerge from Scripture. Uh, the sanctity-of-life standard does. And the two are um, in contrast to one another. The sanctity-of-life standard essentially says all life is holy because all life is... Um, is uh, uh, all people are created in the image of God. And therefore, um, the sanctity of human life standard must outweigh the quality of human life considerations. And, and therefore, uh, this is an unacceptable alternative. Those who uphold the sanctity of life standard would essentially say, I think correctly, there is no such thing as an unworthwhile life. And you say, what are you talking about? Here's a person who's bedridden, whose functions are out of control, could do nothing on behalf of himself or herself. Yeah, but who do you think you are? Uh, 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 folks, do you have any idea what Almighty God might be doing in and through that person at that time? Who do you think you are to make a judgment with regard to the life of that individual and whether it has any benefit or purpose anymore? I've been at the bedside of relatives in these situations. I'll tell you, for one 
um, thing that it does. It really moved me to tears at the, and moved me to the foot of the cross where I, I pled to Almighty God for help and assistance. So it accentuated my relationship with him. It reminded me that he's a very present help in time of need, etc., etc. And I don't even know what's going on in the life of this suffering loved one who couldn't even maybe communicate at the time. But the audacity of the creaturely being, that's me, that's you, to render a a judgment on the quality of life just because that one is suffering. Folks, I don't mean to be a bad guy, but suffering is getting a bad rap. We run from it like that's the purpose of life. Avoid pain, seek pleasure. That's not the ultimate purpose of life. The ultimate purpose of life is to glorify God. Sometimes people afflicted bring more glory to his name than those who who are having it easy. I look to people sometimes experiencing physical and emotional impairment, and yet when I see their confidence in the Lord Jesus, my goodness, it brings more glory to his name uh, than someone who has smooth sailing and an easy time of it. So, So, folks... Let's let's not think suffering automatically presumes that person's life has lost its value, worth, and purposefulness. But then some would say, wait a second, that person is free, that adult person, a competent individual, is free to make his or her decisions about how long he or she wants to live. Well, I really question that for a lot of reasons. The only one who's really free is one who is self-generated. I can prove to you, you are not self-generated. Point to your belly button. That just tells me you didn't get here on your own, for crying out loud. The only one who is self-generated and self-sustained is Almighty God. He's the only one free in his sovereignty to do what he wants to do. The rest of us owe him submission because we are contingent beings, not free, meaning our existence is contingent on his grace. Therefore, we owe him submission and yieldedness. We're not free. Secondly, um, Those people who, uh, at a point of extremity of need, are contemplating the thought of their life being terminated are usually depressed. Now, that's not rocket science, for crying out loud. You look to your impaired body. You're not able to function as you once did. You're beginning increasingly to feel like you're a financial and emotional burden on your family members. You're getting quite depressed about all this, And in your state of depression, you're not thinking straight. Are you really free? Folks, do you know everybody who commits suicide manifests depression before they do? That is the consistent precursor to suicide. The one who follows through on it is depressed beforehand. We would all say after the fact, oh, no, I wish that person simply got help in dealing with depression because then that person's perspective would have been different. This person made an irreversible choice now about a circumstance that could perhaps have been addressed so that the person had relief. A person who's saying to the physician, I want you to assist me in ending my life, or a person who asks a relative to put a pillow over them and suffocate them, something like that, do you think that person is cognitively, intellectually free, undistracted, and able to make a clear and objective decision about how long they want to live? They're emotionally distraught, and the studies indicate this time and time and time 
time again. The vast majority of people who call for their life to end are glad ultimately that it never happened because they got help. There's something called palliative care today. We have pain reduction uh, vehicles today that were not available in prior generations. There's no virtue in looking to someone in pain and suffering and not doing everything we could to relieve it, but it's a vice to terminate that person's life. We can comfort the person, try to reduce the pain through palliative care and all the rest, but we cannot circumvent the decision of Almighty God. Now, folks, if someone's death is inevitable, someone's medical impairment is an irreversible thing and it's just a matter of time, there's no virtue in interfering with the inevitable, in prolonging the dying. That's entirely different, meaning you don't have to feel obligated to take extraordinary measures to continue that person's life, but you're not allowed to withhold life-sustaining measures that keep the person alive. You're not allowed to do that. You're not God. Now, be careful, folks, because it's going to take over here um, just like it is in lots of other countries of the world. It's just the normal kind of slippery slope when people uh, become more and more anti-God his mindset and values diminish. And so at the beginning of life, we don't see the sanctity of the unborn, and therefore we're given to abortion. And at the end of life, we don't see the sanctity of the aged, ailing senior citizen, and so we're applying the same quality of life standard, but it's the sanctity of human life standard that emerges from Scripture. So Whatever justification this guy claims there was, you know, Saul asked me to do this. Saul was dying anyway. Too bad. We're not allowed to do that. We do not have the authority to terminate one's life. Okay. So that's kind of a, a sidelight because uh, just this morning I read a couple articles on euthanasia, not in preparation. They were just in the news, and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's going to be one of the next bioethical challenges, it seems to me, that faces the Christian community. And we as a Christian community are already drifting. We're already becoming very, very influenced by this, the current of the day. And so I, I hope we stay strong with regard to euthanasia. It's not acceptable. Okay, verse 17. Notice I didn't ask if you had any questions because... Hey, Dusty, really great to have you back, buddy. I love the beard. Great to have you. Uh, there's debates about this, and I didn't want to open it up to class for debate today because uh, I don't want to give you a chance. <laughs> so look, verse 17. David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. You know what David did? He wrote a song. He was a musician. Very creative. We know this. He wrote many of the Psalms. He wrote a song. It's a lament. It helped him in his grieving. But it wasn't just for him. It says, verse 18, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song, the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jeshar. Why is it called the song of the bow, this lament that David wrote? We don't know exactly, except this possibility. Jonathan has frequently mentioned Jonathan, David's close friend, in association with a bow. 
it appears he had proficiency with it. And maybe this is a kind of an ode to his murdered friend. Hence the title, Song of the Bow. So it says it's written in the book of Jashar. So have you ever read that book? I hope not, because we don't have it. It's mentioned in the Bible, but we don't have an, a, a copy of it today. Why not? I don't know. The Bible refers to a number of extra-biblical books that we no longer have. The reason why I, I'm kind of emphasizing this book of Jeshar, it's mentioned one other time in the Bible, by the way, in Joshua 10, verse 13. Jeshar means righteous or righteousness. It's thought to be a chronicle put together by a historian of key events in Israel's history, key personalities who did good things, heroic things. So you can see David in, you'll see, um, uh, respecting the memory of Saul and Jonathan. You can see why he thought that it would be well placed in the book of Jashar. Uh, I'll tell you what's going to happen one day. Someone is going to claim they discovered it. They found the book of Jashar, and they're going to write a book about the book of Jashar. And you're going to buy it. And we may even offer it in our bookstore over here. But it's going to be offered all over the place. And the author is going to go on a speaking tour and maybe even sign over rights to a movie. The author, if it's a male, is going to have a long beard, probably dress all in black, look really cool and otherworldly. I'm telling you. And people are going to flock to this author's symposiums and conferences and all the rest. This guy's going to be on Christian, so-called Christian TV and all, et cetera, et cetera. Missing book of the Bible. However, even if it's found, even if it's found, it is not a book of the Bible. It is not inerrant, inspired scripture. It's mentioned in the Bible, but it is not the Bible. So be careful of this because people today are making lots of money coming up with secrets that nobody else has seen, discovering mysteries that nobody else has discovered. By the way, you should be wary of pastors who use the word mystery and secrets in their sermons too much as titles. The secret teachings of the this, the mystery teachings of that. I'll tell you why you should be aware. We don't have a book of Revelation, the last book. We have 66 books of Revelation. God is not a God of the mysteries. He's a God of revelation. Our Father does not want to withhold things from us. He wants to express them. He came as the incarnate word and fleshed. He's given us 66 books of inspired scripture for crying out loud. Now you can find new application for it. The Holy Spirit can illuminate it in a fresh way so that you say, wow, I never saw that before. But that's a whole lot different than God entrusting his secrets and mysteries to a select few of esoteric oddballs who are writing their books and making all kinds of money by entertaining us with your list of secrets and mysteries. That's just not the way it works. God is a God of, I'm a dad. I, I didn't raise my kids guessing at secrets and mysteries their father has in his brain but refuses to Revealed to them, on the contrary, as a dad, you want to train up your kids. You want to teach your kids. You want to reveal life skills to your kids. How much more our Heavenly Father? Anyway, be warned. I see it coming. In fact, I'm thinking it myself. I'm going to, you know, as I near eventually retirement or death or whatever, before I die, I'm thinking of writing a book, uh, The Discovery of the Book of Jeshar. And I'm going to 
put a whole bunch of stuff in there, you know, just make up stuff, you know, and and then collect your money, and that'll be my retirement fund. <laughs> anyway, beware. So here's the words of David's song, his lament. Verse 19, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? He repeats that phrase three times in his ode. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will, ex- will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. Ashkelon and Gath were two very key Philistine cities on the Mediterranean coast near a place in the news now, Gaza, near Gaza. And David is saying, I don't want this news to be publicized in those cities lest the daughters of the Philistine find a cause for rejoicing over the demise of Jonathan, uh, Saul, and the other Israelites. That's essentially what he's saying. Then he says in verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, that's the place where Saul Jonathan died. Let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Some think what that means is that in those days there was a custom for military men to anoint or to spread oil on their shields for two purposes. One, it would give it a sheen that could blind the enemy. Two, Uh, If it was well-oiled, arrows would ricochet off it. Now David is saying, that's all over. The only thing on Saul's shield, Jonathan's, is blood and dirt. So you see, it's not anointed for battle anymore. In fact, they've died in battle. Now verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. So can you see where I was saying maybe the title to this ode? Song of the Bow, comes from Jonathan's association and facility in using a bow in contrast to Saul, who used the sword. Look, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul was a big guy, tall, literally head and shoulders above the crowd. A a sword could really, really be wielded with effectiveness by a big, tall guy, as you can imagine. So David is talking about this. Now verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now, if you're like me, when I first read this, you're saying, man, David is losing it. What is this? This is a bunch of nonsense. Saul was a creep. Saul tried to kill him like on numerous occasions. Saul was a bad king. What is David saying all this stuff for? Well, I've learned something from David here. Um, uh, Those who officiate at funerals or attend, uh, I think there's something we could learn from David. When a person's life has ended, it makes no sense to publicize their flaws frailties, inadequacies, and sins. What good is it for the person? While Saul was alive, David, upon occasion, confronted him with his bad thinking, his misbehavior, and his sin. That's when that kind of confrontation is of value. When the sinner is dead, why do you keep talking about his sin? 
You're not doing him any good, especially at a funeral. And you're surely not helping those who are grieving. Then you might say, no, but you've got to be truthful. Yeah, yeah. But being truthful doesn't mean you have to tell all the truth about a person's life. You don't have to do that. You have to be a little more discerning and selective at a funeral. And so David seems to be doing this. And he's recalling the good things that came from a man's life, though his life tragically and prematurely came to an end. What are some of the good things? Well, he says, hey, daughters of Israel, you're clothed pretty well. What does that mean? Saul was a good administrator. And he uh, he uh, won many military victories and was able to take care of his uh, administration and his uh, peoples uh, in, in a good way. Secondly, David says, and they loved each other, Saul and Jonathan. There were aspects of that. David remembers the time when his brothers laughed at him, publicly humiliated him. Saul said, okay, if you think you can go up against Goliath, here's my weaponry, here's my sword. David remembers there were good things. Saul got after a good start. There were good aspects of his uh, life and, and of his governorship and then others. And so David, at the funeral, when you're writing, when you're thinking about the loss of someone, try to remember the good times. Based on stuff like this, I always try to offer this to a family uh, when they're saying goodbye to their loved one at a service. I always try to say one of the things, do your best to remember the good times. Of what value is it to remember the not-so-good times? So I want to share this with you. I was in seminary a long time ago, and my favorite professor was a Greek professor. He was unbelievably motivating. He was a big guy, so he was an outstanding figure physically in terms of stature, but also spiritually. Godly man. He could have been so well-known that if I mentioned his name, you would know him, but he did not give himself to that. He didn't write as many books as he could have, he didn't go on as many um, speaking tours as he could have. It's because his wife was physically impaired. I don't remember what the illness was, but it was a debilitating illness. And, and he was very faithful to the vows, you know, in sickness and in health. And so instead of pursuing fame in his career, he, he ministered to his wife. But then things got bad after a number of years, and she needed care other than he could provide. She needed to be in an assisted living facility. So he researched the options pretty carefully in the area where the seminary was, found the place he had confidence in, and moved his wife there. And she was doing fine there. She felt it was a good thing. And he was just a couple miles away. He visited her every single day. But something happened. He would go home at night. Now the home is empty. And for the last 15 years, he had invested his life in caring for his wife. He did all the cleaning, all the shopping, all the cooking, all the everything. And all of a sudden, there's nothingness for him. He had nothing, I, I think, he felt to live for. And as a result, he took his life. And we found out about it in the seminary community. And we were all devastated. I remember my personal impression and reaction. I was thinking, if this could happen to Dr. So-and-so, a giant in the faith, what hope is there for me? I really lost hope and thought, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to run into life's challenges. I'll be overwhelmed with them because I'm not half the person 
Dr. So-and-so was. What hope is there for me? And then a letter came to the seminary community from the president of the seminary, and he said many good things in it. In it, he surely did not condone the decision this wonderful man made that ended his life. But I remember he made the statement in the letter. He said, please resist the temptation to evaluate Dr. So-and-so's life on the basis of one event, albeit the final one and a tragic one. Please resist the temptation to evaluate this man's life on the basis of one event. And that freed me. Because when I evaluated the totality of his life, I saw a godly man, a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus, a wonderful husband, a magnificent mentor and professor. None of it was invalidated by the final serious uh, permanent event which we don't condone and promote, but the totality of his life was evaluated. And so it just freed me up. And I think David was doing that now. He was not overlooking all the terrible things he himself experienced at the hands of Saul, but he was evaluating the totality of his life and finding cause in his lament to call attention to the virtues and the good things God used this man uh, to do. Remember, no life is unworthy. Uh, God has given life. And so that's what David did. Now, here's what happened. The ode continues. How have the mighty fallen, verse 25, in the midst of the battle? Jonathan slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. Answer me this question. On the basis of that, what do some people justify? Yeah. So those who want to justify homosexuality from the Bible really often make recourse to this particular passage. Now, if you want to justify same-gender relations, it is a free country, but you cannot do it by misinterpreting Scripture. That is not what this text give, gives rise to. I'll tell you what this text is saying. It's saying two men can have such affection for one another that one grieves the loss of another. There's no homosexual in indications here. You can't read this into it. It's possible for two guys to have such affection. For yeah, but it says your love for me, John, is better than the love of a woman. You know what some think, and I'm one of them? He's not talking about sexual activity with a woman. He's talking about a mother's love for her children and even a wife's love for her husband. And he is saying, Jonathan, the love we shared even exceeds that, a mother's love and a wife's love. By the way, I don't have to graphically remind you of David's heterosexual inclinations. Do I? So to make this a case for homosexuality, by the way, if I wanted to argue the case for homosexuality, there are better ways to do it. Don't do it with this. That's intellectual suicide. That's not what this is talking about at all. Then our final verse here, verse 27. Again, David repeats now for the third time this phrase, how have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? So I close with this thought. If David was right to be so angry because a man killed Saul, King Saul, the Lord's anointed. 
how much more is our heavenly father justified in being angry with regard to those who mistreat his only begotten anointed son? What do you think of people who mistreat your children or grandchildren? How much more God will hold against those who mistreat his anointed son? How much more will God intervene with wrath? It's a serious situation. When we stand before God, there's only one question I think he'll ask. It'll be this. What have you done with my son? That's it. He's not going to ask, what is your denominational affiliation? What's your stock portfolio? He's not going to take into account our color of skin, our ethnicity, our gender, or age. He's going to ask one question. What have you done with my son? Have you dismissed him? Have you been apathetic? Have you rejected him? What have you done? And our eternity is to be decided on that question and none other. Look, I beseech you, though I think many here have rendered the right response. Father, I have accepted your son as my savior, and now I worship him. Just on that basis, the father will say, enter into eternal bliss. I think some of us, even at that point, will try to talk him out of it. We'll say, oh, God, thank you, but in all fairness, <laughs> there are a few things I ought to tell you about me. Yeah, but he knows this, doesn't he? And it's our union with his son that causes the righteousness of the son to be imputed to our account. It has nothing to do with our so-called righteousness or unrighteousness. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ uh, put on the asset column of our accounting ledger. And it's on that basis that we, we gain entrance into heaven. If it was such a serious matter to mess around with the Lord's earthly anointed King Saul, how much more a serious matter is it to wrongly respond to God's divinely anointed one, the enfleshed God, Jesus Christ? Don't walk away from him if you know this to be true, say, Lord Jesus, I honor you as Lord and Savior. Inhabit me, change me, cause me to respect you, and make me to be a worshiper of you now until the time when I meet up with you in heaven. This is a very important matter. Lord Jesus, we bow before you specifically because we honor you as one now high and lifted up. First, the humiliation and then the exaltation. And we are grateful that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. We'll bow before you, I think, most of us with joy. Others, I think, with fear. But that need not be the case. So I pray there be not one who leaves this place today who has not responded rightly, O God, to your Son Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. This is the right response. Forgive me, I've sinned against you. Thank you that what you've done has obtained for me total forgiveness of sin. Thank you that you died in my place. Thank you for rising up from death, and I believe in union with you, I shall as well. I look forward to seeing you face to face, and until that happens, help me to live in a way that pleases you here and now. This I pray in Jesus' name. I hope that's 
the uh, prayer of your heart expressed in a deliberate way at one point or another so that you can be sure when you meet up with the anointed ones. That's what Messiah means, by the way, anointed one. When you meet up with the anointed one's father, you'll be able to say, I have taken your son as my savior. That is the way we gain entrance into heaven. God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll be in chapter two of Second Samuel next week. God bless you.